Welcome to this final lecture of Counseling 506. And we're going to focus on issues of ethics, professional practice, and personal integration. In case you are wondering, the issues of ethics and professional practices have everything to do with issues of integration. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. Dr. Falwell has always said that if it was Christian, it should always be better. So as Christian counselors, we have a greater responsibility than our secular colleagues to be above reproach in the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we carry out our calling and our profession. There are numerous practices, precautions, and prayerful attitudes that can help each of us across a lifetime of counseling to stay on track. Listed here are four such practices on which we're going to focus for the next few moments. First, it is important that every Christian counselor, whether in a full-time counseling practice as a licensed professional, a lay counselor in your church, or a counseling pastor, to have a professional disclosure and informed consent statement. I agree with McMinn when he states that a careful informed consent policy and professional disclosure is an earmark of Christian counseling. Second, we need clear ethical standards of how we're going to practice day to day. This provides us with a clear sense of how to conduct ourselves in a way that is going to anticipate and avoid obvious problems and create the most therapeutic environment for our clients. You can find an excellent source of ethical standards through the American Association of Christian Counselors, or the AACC. Third, we need to have a clear confidentiality policy and practices that states how we're going to honor the confidentiality of our clients. And fourth, we need to have practices of self-care and spiritual formation in place to keep us at our best and growing in the Lord for the long term so we do not burn out early. In case you have never prepared an informed consent before, here are several elements that are very important to include in this type of document. I strongly encourage you to spend some time as you are preparing to enter counseling at any level to have these statements in place before you see your first client. Or if you are already working in some capacity in counseling and you've not done so yet, I would urge you to develop your professional disclosure and informed consent documents as soon as possible. Having these kinds of documents in place where you have clients sign after they've read it can save you many headaches in the future. Here's a list of what this document should include. An accurate and clear description of your training and qualifications and licensure if you have it. What the ground rules are on how you will see clients, such as the times and the days of the week that you will see people, and the number of sessions that you set as a maximum or a minimum. You should also describe the kinds and to what depth of problems you will counsel. It is very important to not exceed your training and ability in counseling. You want to make sure that you are not counseling someone in an area that you have not been trained in, which would be unethical. 
You also will want to articulate your referral policy. As mentioned earlier in a previous lecture, you're not obligated to meet with every client that comes to you for help, especially if it is in an area that you do not have training or experience. We'll go into greater detail about confidentiality in a few moments, but one of the first items that a potential client should see when they come to your office is a statement of how you handle issues of privacy and confidentiality. They need to know up front what the limits of confidentiality are. They also need to be aware of their right to refuse services and to have access to their records. You should also give them a description of your worldview. As a Christian, it is important to let your clients know that and to let them know the way this impacts your approach to counseling and the counseling techniques that you may use. And lastly, you need to include a statement of your expectations of clients in terms of their attendance and being on time, their use of session time, their diligence to participate, that you expect them to do any homework given, and certainly the fees that they may be paying. It is essential as a counselor to always be thinking ahead about your ethical standards of practice. First, it is important that you consider the worst possible case scenarios, not to be negative, but to be aware. As Jesus warned us, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to have some hedges against inappropriate behavior. For instance, a counselor should never invite someone for counseling in their home late at night or at all. While I'm sure this sounds obvious, as you get into the profession, you will be amazed that this behavior happens quite frequently. Anticipate situations that might promote inappropriate behavior or accusations of impropriety. Next, think through what your standards might be in terms of ensuring your own objectivity in handling secrets in family counseling. To do family counseling well is a great act of ministry to a hurting family, but it is important for you to not become part of the problem. You want to be able to state clearly ahead of time how you're going to handle confidentiality and how you're going to distinguish between privacy and secrets and then follow through on those policies. Another standard you need in place is a clear rationale for handling conflicts of moral values. When you are faced with an irreconcilable difference with a client, it is important for you to refer that client to another counselor. One example of this might be having a client who is homosexual and who is seeking approval from you for their behavior. At some point, you may have to refer the client if this becomes a complete, non-negotiable moral conflict for you. It is also important to be sensitive to your blind spots. All of us have prejudices and biases. It is part of being human. So part of your self-awareness is to know what yours are and to look for warning signs that you are behaving in a biased way. A key practice here would be to make some kind of provision for accountability 
such as professional supervision. All professional counselors should be in some kind of accountability relationship. And lastly, every counselor should have a rationale for how and when to employ spiritual interventions. We've talked before about the use of scripture, prayer, and confession in the counseling process and about the spiritual dynamics of the therapeutic relationship. So it's important for you to have a sense of how you're going to use these interventions at the proper time. Let's turn for a few moments to look at how an ethical counselor makes decisions. In another class we mentioned doing no harm. This is always our first requirement as professional and as Christian counselors to do no harm to our clients. And secondly, to know who the client is, especially when you are working with couples or families. It is sometimes an important question to know who is the client and in whose interest are you going to place a top priority. We also need to consider, as you're working with a client, what is in the client's best interest. Not necessarily what does the client want, but what does the client need. Next, are there any inherent risks or dangers of which we need to be aware? Does this person present a danger to themselves or to others? Are there any factors in this person's family or relationships that are a risk or danger of which we need to be aware and know about? Then, is the work that you are doing and the way that you are making decisions in line with Christian morals and values? As much as we want to help people, we aren't very helpful to them if we violate our own core values to do so. And this also includes our professional standards and codes of ethics. It is never justified for a counselor to violate the professional standards and ethics of the practice of counseling. Christian psychologist Larry Crabb has encouraged counselors to ask ourselves every time we meet with a client several questions. Not, how is this client doing, but how am I feeling? How am I reacting to this person? These become important depth questions for understanding something about our motives, reactions, about our own enmeshment with a client. It also helps to keep us out of potential ethical problems, such as not dealing with sexual attraction to a client in a correct way. And certainly, as part of ethical decision-making in Christian counseling, is the need to pray regularly for guidance from the Holy Spirit. It is a simple fact that if we cannot hold confidences, then we cannot practice counseling. People cannot trust those who will not keep their secrets. And yet, some situations do arise where it is clear how to handle certain secrets that have been shared with us. For instance, if a client shares that they have been sexually abusing their child, we are required by law in all 50 states to call the police and report it to Child Protective Services immediately. Or, if a client tells you that they have been planning to murder their spouse, you are ethically required to let that spouse know they may be in danger. So there are several situations in which you must break confidences. 
as part of their informed consent. It is important to let your potential clients know before they start counseling what those circumstances are, where their confidences may be broken. And as part of the therapeutic contract, we also need to detail the way in which confidentiality is going to be handled when it is not one of those areas where it must be broken. This is especially important when working with couples or families, when trust issues may be a great part of the conflict they're having. For instance, you may be working individually as well as together with a couple, and so hear personal matters. Do you share them with the other spouse or not? What are you going to do with this information? You need to detail to the clients how these matters are going to be handled before you start the process. To help explore the difference between secret keeping and privacy, we need to ask ourselves questions like, does the other member of the couple need to know? If I keep this information private, am I engaging in collusion with this person in keeping a secret from their spouse? Is secrecy already a problem in this relationship? Am I promoting behavior that will only worsen the relationship in the long run? These kinds of therapeutic questions help us anticipate discussing confidentiality in the beginning of the counseling relationship when we're doing couple and family counseling. Carpel uses the term accountability with discretion as his way of talking about the confidentiality needs and the relationship that a counselor has with his clients in a family or couple situation. He recommends that the counselor negotiate with couples ahead of time as to what sort of discretion they may want to give the counselor in guiding them to divulge information that has been kept from the other and in doing what is in the best interest of the couple's healing. Lastly, we must watch out for triangulation and collusion traps because these are common problems when couples and families try to make the counselor take sides. This is also done to draw the counselor into the conflict, to make you part of the problem, or to have you engage in a collusion of secret keeping. George Olschlager is a licensed social worker and an attorney who has studied and written on the most common legal and ethical pitfalls in Christian counseling. I will list them here so that you might be aware of them and be better prepared as you are training to become a counselor so you can avoid the sorts of problems on this list. The first is counseling beyond your competency. You must recognize the limits of your training and expertise and qualifications. Or giving advice against medical treatment. Our colleagues in the medical field are indeed that, our colleagues. We are never empowered as professional, pastoral, or lay counselors to contradict the advice of a medical doctor. To become sexually involved with clients is obviously inappropriate. Some counselors exceed their licensure or training by inappropriately using psychological tests. If you have no training in it, don't do it. One pitfall that very often occurs is the improper care of records. Have a system and a plan for locking up 
and the care of client records and know who is helping you to handle those records so that confidentiality can be protected. Sometimes counselors get into trouble because they fail to recognize danger or violence. So when some terrible tragedy happens, the counselors blame because they were professionally negligent. Some Christian counselors, with a certain point of view about spiritual warfare and spiritual dynamics, try to diagnose psychotic clients by mislabeling them as demon-possessed. Misrepresenting your credentials is simply lying about yourself, and that can get you into serious ethical and maybe legal problems. The last few are very easy to recognize as wrong. Never recommend for or against divorce. Do not violate confidentiality except in the prescribed situations and never make the professional mistake of labeling all problems as strictly spiritual. Finally, let's look at how to be an effective counselor and enjoy a long and fulfilling practice, which falls under the self-care of a counselor and intrapersonal formation category. Here are several ways that you can use to take care of yourself, because you should never underestimate what a challenging profession you are entering in by becoming a counselor. To see hurting people day in and day out can wear you down. So it is so important to anticipate that you need refreshment, that you need a support system, and that you need some time for self-care. It is a measure of wisdom when we who are engaged in Christian counseling receive our own counseling from time to time, sometimes in the form of accountability partners and professional supervision and sometimes in the form of actual therapy. It is also important that we be intentional about our individual and family's prayer life and spiritual formation. It is a good idea to look for a support group for counselors in your area. I would urge you to find a personal mentor, someone who is a Christian counselor, a pastor, or elder who has been counseling for a long time and who can be an encouraging figure for you. I encourage you to always keep your clients in prayer. You must also continue your training. None of us will ever reach the point where we know it all or where we've had enough training. There is always some new insight, new research, and new writings that can be helpful and renewing to us and to our clients. We must remain aware of the compassion fatigue and burnout that comes from the wear and tear that we experience when dealing with hurting people on a daily basis. And it is important to be intentional about your wellness practices, to be concerned about your daily rest, about exercise, about proper nutrition, about having some form of recreation, and being diligent in keeping a reasonable work schedule. Well, this concludes the lecture series for Counseling 506, Integration of Psychology, Theology, and Spirituality in Christian Counseling. It has been a blessing for me to be able to share with you some of my own insights and other experts' training in understanding this course material. And I pray that it has been a blessing to you.